Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, November the 2nd, early afternoon. Uh, I wish I could have a nap. We actually did a show last month on napping. Uh, with uh, an activist, uh, Trisha Hershey. Um, She argues that the best way to resist capitalism and racism is to dream and go into what she calls her nap ministry. Uh, She has a new book out, Rest is Resistance, a manifesto. Although for most of us, the lack of sleep may not have anything to do with uh, resisting capitalism. It simply may be about not being able to sleep. Uh, And there was an interesting piece in the New York Times uh, yesterday asking if you can't sleep, try sticking your head in the freezer. Very counterintuitive solution, which is built off a new book by my guest today, Eric A. Prather, uh, who has a new book out called The Sleep Prescription. And Eric is awake. Uh, I'm going to try not to make too many sleep jokes today. And he's joining me from San Francisco. Eric, stick your head in a freezer. Isn't that the best way to wake yourself up? Yeah. Yeah. You know, what? It, what that uh, particular title was a good way to get people to read the article, I think. So, uh, yeah, because in the book, it's, it's actually about uh, a way in which we can get people to uh, get through the midday doldrums, right? I mean, we all, you know, this is around yeah. the time that, that that happens. And so that was uh, a novel way, uh, you know, some scientific backing around kind of cold exposure to enhance the nervous system, but uh, certainly not a good way to get to sleep. So a little misleading on that. Where are we on sleep, uh, Eric? Uh, or maybe I should call you Dr. Prather. Uh, when it comes to asking you questions on sleep, there's always these fearful books coming out. We had one last year with Lisa Lewis, Mm. a new book she had called The Sleep Deprived Teen. Every year we read warnings that we're not getting enough sleep. Um, Do you share that? Are most of us not sleeping enough, Eric? Yeah, I mean, you know, the data is pretty consistent that, you know, a good proportion of the population is getting kind of less than the recommended amount, right? So the Center for Disease Control uh, recommends it you know, people get a sufficient amount, but usually being around seven hours of sleep per night. But, you know, it's, it's hard to come by and it seems to be hard to even harder to come by for certain populations. Um, you know, teens, as you brought up, are, are certainly one of those vulnerable populations, uh, largely, you know, as a as a function of kind of what's going on in society, as well as kind of school start times, which in some states have already been uh, enacted to to be delayed to help account for um, what happens naturally in adolescence, which is a, a move towards a, delete, a delayed sleep phase. So kind of this preference to go to bed later at night. But if the school's early, uh, obviously they're going to get less sleep than they need. So we don't get our seven hours, uh, Eric. Well, we're bad tempered. We don't function. We don't feel well. It, um, it impacts our body and our, and our mental state. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of that we can see in the sleep deprivation literature, right? Like when people don't get the sleep they need, 
um, you know, they, they, they're a little bit more ornery, right? I mean, we're a little bit more self-centered. We don't think as clearly. Our attention span is, is shorter. Our memory doesn't work as well. We're more sensitive to stressors. I think that is one that really comes out in the literature that like when people don't get the sleep they need, just the, the world is harder. We're like more vulnerable to the, the slings and arrows of the day. And our sensitivity to it is kind of upregulated that, you know, little things feel like big things to us when we don't have sleep on board. And, you know, that makes just day-to-day -day living that much yes. more challenging. So we're not able to contextualize things. It's interesting, your new book, the sleep prescription seven days to unlocking your best rest is part of a new series we're going to do a couple of the other books in the series too um the stress prescription and the love prescription are they all bound up together stress sleep and love eric I mean, yeah, I mean, they, they, they are. I mean, we can think about our kind of day-to-day -day lives. I, you know, sleep and stress are obviously, you know, bi-directionally linked. And then you throw in kind of how we work as a, as a community in the context of our families, in the context of our loved ones. You know, when people get sleep that they need, I mean, they are better partners. They're better parents. Um, you know, what we've, we've shown in, in a various different kind of experimental studies, when, when we deprive people of sleep or when people don't get the sleep that they typically do, they're more likely to get into conflicts with one another. And certainly that is stressful. And so it's kind of all tied up into a, a package of just uh, kind of the pushes and pulls of the day. Um, and so, you know, I look at it, particularly in the sleep and stress domain, as opportunities for intervention, right? We can try to reduce people's stress, which might, which might have spillover effects to our sleep. But in the same way, we can try to improve people's sleep, like we try to do in this book, to yeah. give people the resources they need to deal with stress. Because, you know, honestly, we can't remove stress out of our lives uh, oftentimes. And so having that sleep on board can really put people in a better place. Yeah, I mean, it's hard on, on that front when it comes to stress and sleep to mm -hmm. separate the cause and effect. Well, there you have it, in a way, uh, at least according to Dr. Prather. If you're, uh, if you're not getting on well with your partner, if they seem short-tempered, get them to stick their head in the freezer. <laughs> I'm not sure how personally they'll take. But in all seriousness, um, Eric, as you suggested to me uh, before we went live, that headline was a little misleading it's not the core uh, of your book uh, you've got these this this seven day uh plan uh so seven days to save yourself seven days to um to improve your sleep day one set your internal clock what does that mean uh, i mean you know our bodies crave predictability um and one of the ways in which we can do that is by kind of ensuring that people get up at the same time every day, seven days a week. It's critical for kind of entraining your circadian rhythm, which is part of the, the infrastructure that, uh, you know, helps people sleep well. Um, and it helps people shift a little bit around, around the idea that, you know, we can't control when we fall asleep, right? Like sleep is not something we make happen. Sleep is something that comes to us. But what we can control is what time we wake up. And if you maintain that seven day a week wake up time, you'll tend to get sleepy around the same time each night. So we're trying to take the pressure off people who are, you know, have trouble sleeping by, you know, not making it a, a requirement that they go to bed at the same time because every day is a little bit different. But we can 
control when we wake up. What about people? I used to travel a lot more than I do now because of this show, but I was uh, I was traveling from California to Europe once or twice a month. What about the people who who are changing time zones dramatically often? How do you set your own internal clock? Is that possible? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly a challenge, right? Because when you kind of travel across time zones, and this is, you know, most apparent when you go from west to east, um, you know, there's this incredible circadian misalignment, and your body feels it, right? And so, you know, the good news is you will slowly adjust to the time zone that you're in. But I mean, it, it's, it's something that is, is really highlights how incredibly important the circadian rhythm is. And so, you know, when, when people do travel across time zones, and I, you know, I see people in our clinic all the time where this is a challenge, we do have some steps that we can take to try to, uh, you know, make that a little bit easier, right? So this is things like, you know, you know, forcing yourself to get up in the, in the morning, in the time zone that you're in, getting light exposure into your eyes so that you can shut down that melatonin system, um, getting on the eating schedule of the time zone that you're in. These are those types of cues that really tell your body what it's supposed to be doing and get that moving along. And then the final thing is that we, that we often recommend to help with jet lag is um, melatonin supplementation. So melatonin isn't great for treating people with insomnia. The efficacy data isn't strong there, but it is pretty good for helping shift your circadian rhythm a little bit. And so if people take a very low dose, and we're talking like 0.5 milligrams of melatonin and take it around five hours before the time that they want to be in asleep at the time zone that they're in. So a lot earlier than most people take it, it kind of slowly cues the body that like, hey, I should be making some melatonin and will help set the table for allowing them to sleep. And so, you know, those things in combination can help people um, when they're experiencing that jet lag. In a way, and, and you sort of suggested this earlier, you can't trick your body, can you? Well, I mean, you can, you can trick it to some extent, and, and we know some of that. I mean, this is really true in the context of insomnia, right? We know that from the, from the medication studies that the placebo control condition, people often improve. So there, there's, there's that part to it. But, you know, obviously in the context of the circadian rhythm, it, it really takes these external cues from the environment and, um, you know, that... Some people do it better than others, but it's, it, it does take time for sure. Eric, I wonder, day two and day three seem entirely contradictory. Day two, you say ease off the gas, and on day three, energize. How can you do them both? <laughs> yeah, so the, the ease off the gas is really about kind of scheduling breaks throughout the day. Um, it's really about trying to attack what we know is the stress that seeps into our night, right? So it's being intentional about doing good things to your body so that that stress doesn't build up and kind of seep into the, the, the nighttime experience. And so that's what the ease off the gas part is. The, the energized piece is like, look, you know, we, we all go through this circadian dip in the early afternoon, right? This is like consistent with siesta cultures. Um, and oftentimes people feel really sleepy around, you know, two, three in the afternoon, a little bit earlier. And, and rather than kind of reaching for that extra cup of coffee or tea, that caffeine that we know stays in our system for at least six hours until it's, it's at its half-life and then, you know, keeps going from there on, 
we we can try to come up with other ways to get through that. And so the energizing, that's actually where the, you know, stick your head in the freezer. Is, is it good to, from the point yeah. of view of sleep, yeah. is it good that I, you know, we began with this idea of the nap ministry, mm -hmm. uh, but in all seriousness, is napping good or bad for sleep? You know, I, I, it's a great question. And honestly, naps used in, in the right way can be really, you know, rejuvenating. Right. There's data to show that naps memory because it's sleep. No, no I get that. Yeah. Um, my point is, if you nap. Yeah. Aggressive. You know, if you have an hour, maybe an hour and a half nap in the afternoon, that's not really good for your night sleep, is it? Well, so, yeah, I mean, I think a really great way to think about it is you can only make so much sleep. Right. Like you have a quota that your body will make. And so if you, you know, kind of snack before dinner. Your appetite at dinner time is going to be different. The same is true when you take a nap. So, you know, if you sleep for an hour, I mean, one, you run the risk of kind of sleep inertia, which is kind of feeling less well than you did when you took it, when you went to go take the nap. But, you know, it also can eat into the night. And so I think it's really just about adjusting your expectations about what a full night's sleep is. And that actually really gets at kind of the types of distress that people have. Right. So, so yeah. So my question would be, is um is napping the afternoon is an is sleeping in the afternoon is that the same quality sleep as night sleeping well i mean it definitely can have a lot of the same restorative uh parts to it i mean the idea that you could just nap and then not have the same thing happen in the in the in the night is is not as clear i mean we certainly know that uh you know during when people nap typically especially if they keep them short it's made up of mostly kind of N1 and N2 sleep, which is kind of lighter and more core type sleep that people get. And they, they often don't dip in deep sleep. And when you sleep at night, usually that's the first thing that you end up going into once you get through that N1 and N2 kind of architecture. So it's, it's not that you can, you know, it necessarily disrupts kind of all the sleeping quality that you have at night but it may just make it so that it's not as consolidated or just not as long as you're typically used to. So the New York Times in its inimical way suggested that we need to, uh, what they said, carve out time for scheduled worry, which was kind of intriguing. But in your, in your seven day plan, day four is worry early. So what's the relationship between worrying and sleep? Is it good to worry or bad to worry? <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's natural to worry. I think that that's You more... mean worry about not sleeping or just generally worry? Uh, I mean, I think worrying is natural. I think worrying about sleep is a problem, right? Like that's where people come when they have insomnia, that's often what's at the crux of it. I mean, lots of different things, but they're also worrying about the fact that they're not sleeping. And that makes that's fairly incompatible with sleeping. But the worry early and the scheduled worry, which is the the is one of the exercises in that chapter, is really about, you know, carving out a specific time in which you will spend time worrying. And so we want to do it early enough that it's not actually close to bedtime, because we don't want to, you know, have it seep into the bedtime. But it also provides you a place where you can get a lot of those thoughts out so that when you're asleep, when you're, when you wake up in the middle of the night and your mind starts worrying a little bit, you, you can tell yourself like, look, no, I already spent 
time thinking about these things and I have it scheduled for tomorrow and I can just go to sleep because the truth is, despite how natural it is for your mind to kind of become active in the middle of the night, we're really not at our best, right? Like that is not the time that we want to be kind of solving all these, our world's problems um, because our brain is just not ready for that. And so actually knowing that you have time for that seems to, um, in the data and certainly in our clinic, be helpful for people in helping them get back to sleep. Although I know a lot of writers, perhaps including myself, often our, our best ideas come at night in the between bouts of sleep. So I'm not necessarily convinced about that. I'm also not convinced that we can really schedule worrying because worrying is such an instinctive thing. Um, the Times also talks, uh, gives us some advice about... Um, not treating our brain like a laptop, which in, a, in an odd way, I guess our brains are like laptops. Uh, and you say for day five, uh, you're not a computer, you can't just shut down. But then on day six, retrain your brain. Are those kind of incompatible too? I mean, are they contradictory? No, no they are not contradictory. So first I would argue that our brain is not like a laptop. I think the challenge is that people- Or a, self, a smartphone then. <laughs> I mean, it's certainly powerful. Um, I think the challenge is that people uh, often kind of like their laptop. They think they can just kind of close their brain and just turn off. And that's just not how it works, right? We actually need to schedule an important transition at nighttime to demarcate when we're going to bed. Like, so those types of rituals and that type, that, that time for relaxation is critical. You know, we need to kind of downregulate from the day and kind of upregulate our parasympathetic nervous system to allow us to sleep. Um, now, the, the retrain your brain part is really specific to the idea of what happens when people have insomnia. So oftentimes people spend tons of time in bed, not sleeping, right? Kind of worrying or tossing and turning or, you know, concerns about not being able to sleep. And what happens when, when, they, when people do that over time is it actually creates what's called a conditioned arousal. And I hear it all the time in the clinic that people will say, you know, I was feeling really sleepy, then I got in bed and my brain woke up, right? Mm. And what that means is that's that conditioned arousal, like that's great evidence and that's really hard. But the only way to kind of undo that is to do kind of to break that relationship. So what we have people do is, you know, if they're in bed and spending a lot of time thinking, you know, give yourselves like 15 minutes, see if you can get back to sleep. But if not, you want to get out of bed and then do something quiet until you begin to feel sleepy again and then kind of repair that relationship with the bed and sleepiness, right? Right. And I mean, it's move. You say, uh, One of the things, yeah. if you can't sleep, move or, or watch one of your favorite shows again and again and again, that will put you to sleep. What about having a drink, Eric? You know, alcohol, I assume you mean alcohol. Yeah, I mean, tea, obviously, and coffee wouldn't be very good idea. <laughs> well, so, you know, I mean, alcohol absolutely is uh, soporific, right? It, like, hits on those, those receptors in the brain that bring on relaxation. Um, but it, it also acts on the brain, and that's where sleep lives. And it can certainly uh, change the quality of it. So it actually suppresses REM sleep, which is, you know, our dreaming sleep. And when, it, when that happens... It, it, can, it actually gives you a big dose of deep sleep instead because there's, there's less REM. And what ends up happening as you go throughout the night is you have this REM rebound and it's it, like more fragmented sleep. And then at the same time, 
you know, you, you have this alcohol hitting those receptors on your brain, but it wears off. And you know what? Your brain notices. And so that also leads to more fragmented sleep. So it helps you can get to sleep, but typically it, it certainly can cause your sleep to be kind of like less restorative. It can change the architecture and ultimately maybe making you feel less kind of rested in the morning than you otherwise would have. Yeah. And uh, I, I think I, I agree with you in a non-scientific way. I know when you drink too much on an aeroplane when you're trying to get to sleep, you wake up feeling worse than when you began. You have this peculiar idea that one way of addressing uh, lacking sleep is decluttering your bedroom. What does that involve, Eric? Well, you know, I mean, I think it, it gets back to this idea that, you know, the bedroom and the bed are just critical for kind of bringing on sleep right? Like your body should know what to do there. And oftentimes we, we live in a life where we've kind of changed our experience such that we multitask in the bed, yeah. you know, we work in the bed, you know, we eat in the bed, we watch TV in the bed and that just kind of changes the power of that experience. And so I guess what I'm, what I'm saying is that, you know, the bed should really be a shrine to sleep. We always say, you know, the bed is for sleep and sex and otherwise you want to kind of take that all out of there. You want to make sure my wife watches TV. Can I tell her that that's from the, the sleep doctor is not a good idea. You know, I mean, I think, I think the important thing is all, all of these, these uh, pieces of advice, they're, they're good general principles, but also they're particularly important if people are having trouble sleeping, right? Like these are things that we can do to try to optimize our sleep. Um, you know, people certainly can read in bed and, and watch TV in bed. And as long as it's not disturbing their sleep and they're sleeping soundly and they don't have any concerns, it's probably not a big deal. I mean, certainly, you know, for all of us, for humans in general, like we need darkness for sleep and it to be quiet and, you know, the temperature not to be too warm or too cold, that kind of thing. But, you know, these other things, you know, people can do okay, usually because they can, you know, there's other things compensating for them, right? They have, maybe they have just this really strong, um, you know, relationship with their bed. And so it doesn't matter if they do those things or, you know, watching TV is just really relaxing and that helps facilitate it. Um, you know, these are, these are really important for people to, to start doing if, if they're worried about their sleep, right? Like we need some tools. And so this is one of the, the tools. Eric, how has COVID changed all this? Um, I saw you mentioned in an interesting medical piece about uh, the relationship between COVID, stress, and depression. Has the two or three year COVID pandemic, it's had a dramatic impact on many of our lives. Yeah. Has that made us sleep better or worse, the fact that we spent more and more time at home? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it has had different effects on different people, right? So for some, you know, the stress of all the things that happen, right? Like those are kind of real life-changing experiences and absolutely have disrupted people's sleep, right? And I think one of the things that, you know, anecdotally that we've noticed in our clinic is a lot of people more than usual coming in with problems of like early morning awakening. Like they'll, you know, they want to get up at seven, but they're waking up at five. And it's like their mind is just active and active. And, you know, that is a real kind of common thing that we see when people are under a lot of stress. Uh, because as we go throughout the night, as we get to those early morning hours, our sleep is just naturally lighter. And so we wake up more. And so as a consequence, you know, people have a lot of stress that can make it hard for them to get those like last couple hours of sleep for other people, right? You know, the, the ability to work from home 
has really changed their um, kind of their sleep for the better in some cases, because they don't have the same kind of commute times. They don't have the same type of time pressure. I think some of that is uh, being undone with kind of the culture around remote work and the lack of boundaries on the end of the day um, or when they should start work. And so for some people it has, you know, had a short-term benefit, but now as they've kind of leaned into remote work for a while, it might be um, kind of wearing away, but we're, you know, we're honestly still kind of grabbing the data on that type of thing. All right. You're, the, you're a sleep doctor in San Francisco, just down the road from me. Seems as if Silicon Valley has dramatically changed its attitude towards sleep. In the old days, in the Web 1 age, everyone used to go around boasting they never got any sleep. Now, all anyone does is talk about how much sleep they get. What's the relationship between sleep and technology and the, the tech community? You must deal with a lot of tech workers in your practice. Yeah, well, we definitely get a, a lot of tech workers in our practice, um, though, you know, I mean, I think the, the, the larger, larger question around the relationship between technology and sleep is a really interesting one. I mean, I think what, what it has done, especially with kind of wearable devices, has yeah. people really interested. That's, in- that's ridiculous. Do, do, would you encourage people to wear these sleep, you know, these watches which tell you how well you sleep or is that? really quite disc- misleading in many ways. Well, I mean, you know, I think there's a lot of benefit to these wearable devices. I mean, for people that want to know about their health or they want to do some interventions to see if they can improve things and they need some kind of metric for that. I mean, you know, wearable devices in general, you know, whether they be kind of rings or, you know, wearing watches and that type of thing, they, they, they tend to be you know, pretty accurate when it comes to measuring how much sleep people get and how fragmented their sleep might be over the night. Where we run into trouble is often around sleep architecture. So currently there aren't any great devices to tell us kind of how much deep sleep we got or how much REM sleep we got. And I will say that like, you know, people will bring in their data to our clinic and be really, you know, kind of nervous and distressed about what they're seeing. And there's a lot of, you know, education that has to go on uh, regarding kind of how much stock you can put in these things. In fact, um, a couple of years ago, uh, the term was coined uh, orthosomnia, uh, which is an insomnia that develops because of wearable devices. So, you know, certainly some people, um, you know, find it distressing, though they're an interesting tool and I'm certain that they're going to just improve over time. I'm sure it's in everyone's interest to keep smartphones out of the bedroom. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you, do you agree with that? Would you prescribe that as, as yeah, the you know, yeah, yeah. Smartphones are, are, you know, a big challenge uh, in, in the bedroom. I think, you know, I heard some statistic that, you know, if you look, you know, you can often get the, the, the someone's sleep duration just by knowing when was the last time that they put their phone down and when was the first time they picked it up because people are just tied to them. Right. And, you know, one of the things that people worry about sometimes are, are kind of blue light exposure from these devices, which we know can impact our circadian system. You know, there are night shift filters on, on these devices, so that can be less of a problem. But what I really think is that, you know, the content that are included, like, you know, people on social media uh, kind of engaging in these things. These are, you know, these are hitting right on our reward system in our brain. I mean, they're developed to keep us coming back. And that just really gets in the way of letting go and uh, getting some good sleep. And so, yes, I mean, I obviously often kind of will ask people about their devices and if they can, 
you know, try to set some boundaries on when they engage in them, or if they're going to engage in them at all, with at all, you know, kind of putting boundaries around content they're using them for. Well, let's get to the end. Uh, day seven, stay up late. It's rather like one of these seven day diets and day seven, you're allowed to eat whatever you like. Are you suggesting that on day seven, you shouldn't sleep too much? So, you know, be, you know, when you start this book, you start with a sleep diary. And so you begin tracking your data over time. And so that's really critical for us to understand kind of how much sleep people are getting and how consolidated their sleep is. Um, and so that last chapter of staying up late, that's actually one of the you know, tried and true tools in our like toolbox and our, in our sleep clinic and others who do cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Because what we do is we actually put people's bedtime later because we want to kind of amp up their sleep drive, make them sleepier. And what happens is like as that sleepiness builds up throughout the day and on subsequent days, you know, they're able to get to sleep quicker and their sleep tends to be more consolidated because, you know, that just that natural process kind of overwhelms much of the concerns that they have about their sleep. And so over time, while they do this, they will become more confident and less concerned about what it, what's going on with their sleep and just let it happen more naturally. Well, uh, there you have it. The Sleep Prescription, Seven Days to Unlock Your Best Rest by Eric A. Prather, PhD, and San Francisco Sleep Doctor. I'm not sure if it'll put you to sleep, but it'll certainly help you sleep. Uh, Eric, uh, are there any good books to put you to sleep? Any Can you recommend any really boring books? Any boring books? Gosh, you know, I don't know if I'd be doing any authors. The Bible? Uh, service. How about the <laughs> uh, Bible? In that. Well, you know, it's long. It's long. It's a lot of names in it. It's, yeah. You know, it's hard to keep it all straight, though there seems to be one character that stands out through most of it. Yeah. Um, any, any books that you would recommend in all seriousness? That... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I was thinking about this. I mean, um, you know, the, the last couple books I read, I read The Premonition by Michael Lewis, which was excellent. Yeah, uh, he's a good writer. About, the, about the, the pandemic and kind of the breakdown of the... Yeah, CDC. another Bay Area writer. Yeah, yeah. And then he's productive. I don't think he ever sleeps. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I'm right now I'm reading uh, a book called The Book of Why by uh, Judea Pearl. And it's about um, kind of ca ca causation and trying to use that to, you know, the the methods and the statistics around that. Um, it's a good read, though. You know, you definitely need to have some math on board in your brain to, to kind of make some sense of it. But it's a, it's a pretty interesting book.